Hello, this is the Organic BC Podcast, and I'm Jordan Marr, an organic corn grower from BC's Okanagan Valley and the show's current host. What you're about to listen to is an episode originally produced for the 2021 BC Organic Conference. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, you're listening to the podcast of the 2021 BC Organic Conference. Hey everyone, it's Jordan, your conference MC. This episode, my conversation with farmer, academic, and author Chris Smage. Chris is the author of a new book called A Small Farm Future, making the case for a society built around local economies, self-provisioning, agricultural diversity, and a shared earth. The book takes as a given that various environmental, economic, and political crises of recent decades will bring about great changes to our society. Chris argues in the book that the best way to confront these changes is the establishment of low-carbon, locally self-reliant agrarian communities. In this conversation, Chris and I will discuss the small farm future he envisions. We'll also take a trip to the conference trade show. This time, Johnny's Selected Seeds. All right, I will talk to you in a little while. Here's my conversation with Chris Smage. Hello, my name's Chris Smage. I'm a small-scale farmer in Somerset, based in Somerset, England. Um, we run a little local veg box scheme and do various other small holding type things. And I have just written a book called A Small Farm Future and also do a blog of the same name, smallfarmfuture.org.uk, where I try and put the farming into a bigger political and economic and future context. Chris Smage, thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast. You're very welcome. It's nice to be here. Uh, I'm really, I'm really excited to, to talk to you about this book, Chris. Your book, A Small Farm Future: Making the Case for a Society Built Around Local Economies, Self Provisioning, Agricultural Diversity, and a Shared Earth. Anyway, thanks a lot for joining me. Right. You're very welcome. Chris, before we get into your book, which I found really interesting and thought-provoking, uh, I thought I thought I'd ask a bit about you because uh, that was one of the few things in your book you didn't cover in great detail, and <laughs> and I think it's kind of important because you're 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 obviously uh, a thinking man, an intellectual, um, but you're also you're also a farmer yourself, and and so I, I was hoping we could you could tell us all a little bit about your farm. And, and about other work in your life, because you clearly have done a lot of thinking about food systems and agriculture and, and the global economy and civilization from a, from a kind of macro perspective. Maybe you could start with your farm and go from there. Sure. Um, yeah, well, I, I, you know, I definitely don't come from a farming background. You know, I had a kind of semi-suburban, semi-rural childhood, um, but, you know, farming was never something that was sort of... Um, part of my world um so then i went to university uh did a degree in anthropology and i kind of got interested in uh, you know global systems global economies the capitalist economy and so on and, and sort of got interested in peasant farmers in the way that they were sort of both part and not part of that but uh but at that stage i didn't actually know anything about farming you know it was a kind of an intellectual pursuit then i ended up graduating doing various other things for a number of years but sort of got got into farming and, and growing from a, a kind of environmental perspective really sort of worrying about um, you know food and farming issues climate issues energy issues and so on and and um, kind of at the same time maybe I had a 
early onset midlife crisis and was uh, feeling a bit caged in the in the office or the the, the lecture hall. So yeah, big big change. And with um, my wife and, and I, we actually spent um, about eighteen months in North America, mostly in BC, as a matter of fact. Um, spent a bit of time on farms there, um, and then came back to Britain and set up our own uh, small holding. Um, so, uh, yeah, kind of learned by the seat of my pants. And I mean, I, you know, I, it, it's funny sort of presenting myself as a farmer. I, I, one of, one of the things, one of the points I make in the book is trying to break down these distinctions between being a, a, a gardener and a, and a farmer, you know, so it's very much been a, a, a voyage of discovery and trying to, trying to figure things out. But it took me back to uh, experiencing, even in my very privileged um, global north sort of way, the pressures that farmers are under in terms of, of you know, trying to sell produce and the prices that we get compared to input costs and so on, and, and sort of thinking about how that's worked historically. And for farmers in the global south, it sort of took me back to, you know, trying to put it into a bigger political and economic context. You know, why is it why is it so hard to make a um, a thriving uh, local agrarian economy of of good wholesome food and um, justice for for everybody? Really, you know, why is that so hard? Um, and and so that's sort of what took me back into the anthropology and the um, uh, the, the politics and so on. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm still here based on the farm trying to trying to do some practical things as well so okay uh chris i'd like to move on to uh the main show here um your book and you 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 open your book um by writing about 10 crises that suggest that the global order the economy our civilization is in pretty pretty big trouble over the medium term, right? Uh, you divide that into ten crises, and and I don't intend to ask you to cover much of those crises because a lot of them will be very familiar to this specific audience of people in the organic community in British Columbia. I mean, I'll just mention that you right. touch on crises of population, of climate, energy, of of things, of water, of land, things that that this this group, this community is is well familiar with, has talked about before. I, I thought we could maybe. Um, dwell on a, on a couple, uh, at least at, at superficial value, like less, less obvious ones, the, the, the last two that you, you cover in this part of the book. Um, and that's, that's political, political economy, the cr crises of political economy and of, of culture. Um, right. And I'm just going to, I'm, I'm not even going to ask you to, to talk in depth. I, I just, I kind of picked out a couple of questions that, that I really wanted to, to ask you for this conversation. So, with regards to political economy, Chris, I'm wondering if you can talk about the role of of symbolism in our in our global economy, and and how it has contributed to the current crisis or or relates to the theme of your book. Right. Well, I talk about the the, the symbolic e economy. You know, it, it essentially, I mean, I suppose I'm coming from, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, my background is in anthropology, which is quite useful, I think, in yeah, there's a lot of things we kind of assume about the nature of the world that you know that that just is. It's just like that, and you know the economy is 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 a classic one where we assume that you know money and the way that we transact, you know, that's just the way things are. And um, actually, you realise that you know it has a specific history and it's specific to a you know particular cultures and particular trajectories. So the idea of um, 
political economy is to put it into a political context. You know, these things, the way we do things happen for a reason. And, you know, and that's been thrashed out politically over many, many years. But also symbolic, you know, the way that um, the way that we think about money. I mean, you know, you were talking about how, uh, you know, you work hard and I'm sure you're a great farmer doing a good job um, on your farm. And yet it's hard to make much of a living, um, whereas other work that you can do in the city, um, you know, you can make way more money uh, compared to how hard we have to work to do that. You know, growing veg, um, uh, there's no comparison and you know why is that there's well you know we can go into the, the 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 details but essentially it's to do with the kind of stories we tell the the you know the narratives we set up between each other the you know the 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 the, the kinds of um uh, cultural ideologies that we subscribe to so i just try and pick away at that in 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 various ways in in the book and say well you know it doesn't have to be this way and particularly that's important because, as you said, you know, we've got these issues coming down the pipe that I talk about in the book, climate change, energy futures, water issues, soil issues. So, um, uh, you know, the way that we tend to monetize those and in, include them in the e- economy is not going to work long term in the way that, it, you know, the, the way that we currently do that. Um, so all of this stuff goes back into the mix. And I, and I think it's just useful to be aware that ultimately it's... Um, you know, it's it's about the stories that that that, that we subscribe to, the stories that we tell uh, to each other, and the kind of how we symbolically uh, represent ourselves in the wider world. And I guess I'm, I was just wondering, like, how you see the dominance of say of symbolic um, trade in our economy, like the trading of currencies or or futures. And how the growth of that aspect of the economy, and I'm 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 kind of generalizing or taking a bit of a leap, but has been more towards exponential, while the growth of uh, the trade in in real tangible things has been more like linear, has 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 distorted things. Just, uh, to take one example, especially for for farmers trying to make a living. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm not at all an expert on. Um... Uh, on on the, uh, the the more arcane aspects of finance, but um, I mean I do talk in the book about you know futures markets were invented in Chicago in the 1860s I believe it was uh, as a way uh, uh, you know emerging directly out of real tangible agriculture as a way of trying to manage the ebbs and flows of of real world production more smoothly. But before long, you know, the trading in the futures themselves um, vastly exceeded the trade, the, the trading in the actual grain. And of course, that whole kind of derivative trading has only, um, uh, you know, has only expanded over over the succeeding century or so. And so, um, you know, I'm kind of arguing in the book that all of these things, that all of the problems we're facing, climate change, energy uh, problems, water, soil, and so on, ultimately, it, it's kind of a, uh, a message from the uh, tangible world that a lot of the things we're doing, a lot of the stories we're telling, um, you know, are having problematic real-world consequences, and we've got to trim them back. And so... Part of this has got to be about reducing abstract global trade, which doesn't really benefit very many people. Part of the book is an argument about emphasizing the food sector less as commodity trading and and more as actually, you know, people creating thriving livelihoods. 
And I think, you know, part of that has got to be about getting more people on the land, um, you know, participating in in a more tangible local economy. So, yeah, those are all the sorts of issues that I, that I try and go through in the book. And how about the crisis of culture? I think I'll just start by asking you to summarize that chapter. What do you mean by a crisis of the culture? Well, I mean, you know, partly, I suppose, as I was alluding to just then, you know, we can look at more tangible crises of climate or economic crisis, but ultimately it comes back to that symbolism. It comes back to that story or the set of stories that we tell ourselves. And um, that chapter I talk about, um, you know, where do we locate this? You know, where do we locate the the, the nature of the of the economic action um, that we participate in as 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 farmers or as citizens in the modern world and I, I talk about the origins of a sense of modernity you know living in modern times uh progressing beyond um being bound to locality and place and um you know the, looking forward to a future where things are getting better and better and you know people are still arguing that it's still books like um you know stephen pinker's um uh, books, uh, you know, that very much push that sort of line that, you know, we've never had it so good. Um, I think that argument is questionable. You know, a lot of the benefit that some people get in the world uh, have come at the expense of other people. But the bigger question really is, um, you know, is this sustainable in its own terms, the way that we're doing things, you know, is is that sustainable? Um, and, and I guess one theme in the book that I try and emphasize is trade-offs. You know, it's like um, it, getting a kind of win-win scenario uh, where everybody benefits. And, you know, it can happen, but it's relatively rare. And uh, quite often there's a downside as well as an upside. So, you know, sure, there's a lot of things about modern life that are great. Um, but, you know, there's, there, are, there are downsides. Um, uh, you know, and health and nutrition is a key one. Um, uh, you know, a lot of people suffering from diseases of affluence and sort of poor, over-enriched diets. And a lot of other people, of course, globally going hungry. Um, and, you know, other aspects of um, modernization, you know, the sort of partly, I suppose, a lot of people wanting to get into farming or gardening or having a bit of land for themselves because they feel a bit trapped and imprisoned by you know, all the very abstract bureaucratic sort of the, the pressure of the city and so on. So, you know, I think we need to have a a more nuanced debate where we, um, you know, we, we, we sort of um, get a sense of where all this is headed, but also get a sense of how, you know, it's, it's not all a positive story and that there are there are other ways that we can um, live and go about um, our lives. Chris? So before we proceed, I just wanted to ask you about your critique of global capitalism, because you talk about culture being part of like a crisis and global capitalism for many of us in the global north anyway, is like the air we breathe. And um, does it feel weird or intimidating to be to be making that critique? I mean, you must face a lot of criticism for it. Am I right about that? Um yeah, well, uh, yeah, interesting question. I mean, I suppose I've been um, I've, I've been writing this kind of stuff for quite a while, and I just started doing um, uh, you know a little blog. Um, um, you know, I, uh, I I sort of haven't kind of put myself about too much trying to make these arguments, but I found a small community of like-minded people, uh, you know, who were interested and sort of battered these ideas. Um, 
around a bit and I suppose I've just gone where I think the uh, I mean obviously I have my own political views and biases and so on but I've, I've basically just looked into um, issues that have interested me and, and tried to sort of figure out which way the wind is blowing and that's led me to a position yeah which I guess is pretty radical uh, for most people um, uh, you know in terms of not really being very confident that or that the way that we've done things I mean you know I think more and more people are cottoning on to this really it's it's an increasingly non-radical position that things like climate change are going to upend our world um, you know the way that we organize the economy is not sustainable in the long run but yeah I, I, it is a little bit um, intimidating in the sense that quite a lot of the discussions I, I have with people uh, you know it's almost like we're talking past each other because people kind of say yeah yeah you know I get that um, climate change is a big issue but kind of assume that they'll still be going to Walmart and you know voting in the national elections in sort of 50 years time in the same way that we do now and um, you know really um, I suspect that that's not the case so it, it can be hard uh, to embrace the, the you know the full import of the, of the kind of things I'm talking about for sure. Well, so you 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 proceed past the crises then to to get into the to the meat of your book, which is about contemplating a different future that you call a small farm future. And I mean, this is my word. I'm calling your vision utopian, <laughs> um, but but I think it's a very sober and realistic utopia. Or rather, I think that you come across as very sober and realistic. You acknowledge many times in your book that this is not going to be easy to achieve, and there will be mm -hmm. a lot of trade-offs, but that it, it may just be the best option we have, I guess is how you've, I'm paraphrasing, but you've, you've put it, um, that, that it, it is probably unlikely we will achieve what you're envisioning. But if we don't achieve it, we're probably looking at a civilization um, worse off than if we do happen to figure out a way to achieve this, this small farm future. Yeah, I mean the 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 word utopia is a is an interesting one because um, you know I think um, in a sense there's nothing more utopian than capitalism. You know, which I kind of talk about a little bit in the book. You know, the notion that we can all selfishly pursue making as much money as we possibly can, um, and that that will somehow uh, generate the greatest public benefit for everybody. Um, uh, you know, that's sort of been the utopian vision of capitalism and you know that's one of the difficulties of writing the book is that i think we've got to talk about the future because we can't carry on doing things the way we are but inevitably if you talk about the future i mean i'm bound to be wrong uh, in all sorts of quite embarrassing ways you know and I, what i don't want to do is is kind of come up with some blueprint and say you know if you just if we just do this if, if everyone just does what i say if everyone implements my own personal uh, future vision uh, everything will be all right uh, so i try and avoid doing that um uh, i don't think everything will be all right and but part of what i'm trying to say is you know what are the you know what are the big crunchy issues what are the contradictions that we're going to face and how can we best steer our way out you know through those into you know into into something better but yeah that that process does lead me to um emphasize localism um emphasize uh, you know, producing um, local livelihoods, local physical livelihoods. So inevitably that, um, uh, you know, a big part of that is farming um, and not necessarily assuming that there will be um, 
you know, either very functional global trade or very functional large-scale political institutions that are going to provide us with the kind of service that we've become used to in uh, certainly in the global north. Personally, I wouldn't call it utopian so much as, um, you know, what, uh, you know, how can we make the best of the uh, difficulties that are coming down the pipe? And given that the present isn't that great in many ways for many people, uh, you know, are there ways that we can try and turn it um, to our advantage? I think the moment I think the moment early on in your book when I when I really felt I could take you and your argument seriously was was your talk of um, your critique of trade off solutionism, the, the, the idea that you assert that there are no solutions, only trade offs. And, and you meant that in terms of the current system, but also the system you were proposing. And I think that is just yeah, so sure. true. Yeah, you, you know, you sort of get this a lot in farming, both in mainstream and in alternative farming, I think, where people kind of say, uh, you, you know, if, if you follow my system, you know, this 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 way of doing things, you know, uh, whatever it is, you know, I, I guess regen ag is a big thing now, uh, all sort of issues about pillage um, or, you know, GM crops would be another sort of classic one in mainstream farming, that these things are presented as, as, as kind of one-shot solutions, you know, obviously we can debate um, uh, all day the, the the pros and cons and rights and wrongs of these things, but you know, none of these things are a solution in themselves. So for sure, you know, the, we face a whole set of choices, and and none of them are um, the 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 ultimate optimal solution. So early on in this in in outlining this vision, you 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 examine whether small farm ecology is up to the task of of of, of a small in, of, of of feeding everyone uh, in a small farm future. So I thought we could just touch on that for a little bit, and and I'd start by asking you, mm-hmm. um, what what is the arable corner? Well, I mean, what I'm arguing there is that. Um, globally, um, we have got into a situation, and, uh, and also historically, you know, we've we've had centralised states that uh, have gone big on um, pushing um, a uh, a single staple crop or a small set of staple crops, and globally, we've become incredibly reliant on um, three crops: wheat, rice, and maize. Uh, and to a somewhat lesser extent, some of the legumes, you know, soy uh, and so on. And, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with those crops. They're great crops. The reason that we grow so many of them is because they tick a lot of boxes. Um, You know, they produce a a lot of the macronutrients um, that we need uh, relatively easily. And, um, you know, they're easily mechanizable, storable, uh, tradable, transportable. Um, but again, we get to these trade-offs where there's uh, there's a downside to that. Um, and that's partly um, uh, in terms of um, the way that centralized states, um, uh, you know, James Scott's wonderful book, Against the Grain, where he kind of points out the ways in which we get trapped um, uh, into reliance on, on these things, um, you know, trapped into reliance on bigger political systems um but also um uh, you know it, it pushes us into this very intensive um high input high output um high uh, sort of soil modifying types of farming and you know the 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 other sorts of things that we might want to do you know incorporate it you know more fresh more whole foods more fresh fruit and veg um more trees in the landscape, you know, a more diverse agroecological 
uh, forms of production kind of get crowded, crowded out, elbowed aside um, because we're so, um, you know, we're so wedded to this model of the big crops. And so then we get, you know, the whole debate about golden rice I talk about a little bit, you know, we get into this situation where people in some some countries, uh, some people, you know, are, are so poor that all they can afford to eat is the one staple crop, you know, like rice. Uh, and then, you know, that doesn't give you the nutrition that you need. So then we start genetically engineering rice to have more vitamin A so people don't get vitamin A deficiency. You know, that's the classic arable corner solution that we're so dependent on this one crop uh, you know, let's try and engineer it to uh, deliver a bit more than it otherwise would. Um, and, you know, part of the argument of, of the book is that we need to step out of that kind of solutionism and embrace more diversity and more um, uh, more agricultural diversity, more localism um, and so on. Um, so, yeah, the arable corner, we've we've sort of boxed ourselves in. Uh, you know, and because there's so many of us in the world today, um, yeah, you know, we inevitably need to use these crops, but we need to try and step back a bit and diversify and rethink the way that they fit into our uh, economies and ecologies. But as you write, that rethink, you know, ultimately, as you just said, we do, we do need, we will, in this future, we will still need to engage in this type of agriculture on some level. And, and part of your consideration of what this small farm future will look like also involves a critique of some of these alt other, like some of some alternative farming ideas, right? Permaculture, organics, uh, 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 regenerative. Um, and I just thought as an example of, 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 I'd like to highlight an example of you um, taking your critique to, to some of these alternative visions or aspects of the farming system that, that you are doubtful about. Like, I thought we could talk about perennial grain really briefly. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, um, I've sort of engaged in a debate with the Land Institute um, and the, 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 the perennial grain breeding that they're doing. I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. I think perennial grains are great. Um, uh, uh, the, the issue is the trade-off issue. You know, the argument you get is that, um, uh, you know, there's a problem with annual grains because of all the tillage and fertilization and so on that's required. So we can, the argument is that we can breed perennial grains that take care of a lot of those problems, but produce just as much um, nutrient, you know, just, just as much protein and carbs as the annual grains. And, you know, my feeling is, and I've, you know, I've written a, a paper about this that goes into it in much more detail than in the book. My feeling is that there's a kind of hard ecological trade-off. When we're talking about temperate um, uh, herbaceous crops, there's a hard ecological trade-off between perenniality and um, grain yield. Um, so I think uh, perennial grains are great um, uh, because um, we don't necessarily need to be producing um, the, the types of yields that you know you typically get from annual uh, grains on the North American prairies, say. Um, so they definitely fit in. But I think I'm, I'm skeptical of the solutionism where it's like, you know, we can we can pretty much carry on doing exactly what we're doing. But with this um, with this high tech uh, grain breeding solution, we can do it without the downsides, you know. And there is a downside, which is lower yield. But actually, what I argue in the book is that that may not be a downside because we need to, um, you know, as I've kept saying, we need to relocalize. We need to start um, 
uh, being food producers rather than commodity producers. And one of the problems that historically with the um, uh, production of annual grains in North America is that this has flooded global markets and pushed, uh, particularly with mechanization that makes it so cheap, pushed small-scale farmers out of farming into quite precarious livelihoods in other parts of the world. So actually, I think if we were growing perennial grains um, and getting lower yields and just using them to feed ourselves in the places where that makes sense, that would be great. Um, but I'm sceptical of the claim that um, you know we can just uh, breed out the, the, the problems with annual grains without any trade-off at all. So what the vision you, you 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 present is is a much more regionalized or localized food system. Um, right. And in, this, in my next question after the following one is 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 going to be whether your, your analysis of whether we can feed the current our current populations that way. But before we do that, we've been talking about different different um, farming techniques and approaches. So can can you can you kind of spell out? And I'm gonna you you when you got into topics like this, it, it made the most sense to focus on one region and a region you know very well. So you were focused kind of on the United Kingdom, where where you're from. In the United Kingdom, in this farm future, what can can you kind of draw a picture for us of 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 what what the food system looks like in in terms of the different types of farming and and a, and a rebalancing of those different types and and how they all fit together. Goodness, that's a tough question. <laughs> uh, and, you know, partly, as I was saying earlier, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of reluctant to uh, paint too much of a blueprint of this is exactly how it's going to operate. But broadly speaking, my vision would correspond to a smallholder or permaculture vision where you would be emphasizing, um, you know, you'd. Um, uh, fruit production uh, with an orchard uh you know a kitchen garden uh producing um you know a lot of um, green veg and root veg um and yeah you know some some um staple production wheat or potatoes um or what have you um so yeah but you know that that's the vision and obviously it you know i mean in the book uh, when I project for the UK, I'm talking about 15% um, of the population employed directly in farming. And that takes us into a whole debate about labour, which is potentially quite interesting. But, I mean, I'm not saying it has to be um, exclusively people doing this on a home garden scale. It, it can be a bigger scale. Uh, again, one of the problems in a lot of wealthy countries is that because um, energy is cheap, because diesel is cheap and human labour is expensive, we tend to import a lot of the labour-intensive crops. So, you know, we don't uh, grow fruit and veg as much as we could simply because the 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 economics aren't promising but you know in terms of the ecology of it we should be doing that a lot more so that would be the vision and i mean i you know there's a whole debate about livestock as well where um you know i think one of the problems is we've got into thinking about livestock as being um ultimately just about the meat or about the eggs and the milk but you know most parts of the world have got a additional low energy mixed farming systems um, where um, grassland and cropland and woodland also are integrated and livestock are a, are a key means by which they're integrated. So again, you know, what I'm arguing in the book is that, you know, that system isn't a panacea. I'm not saying we should all um, just uh, go back to what the original mixed farming 
systems of the past were, but we can certainly learn from them and be inspired by them. And uh, much more gardening, a bit less of the arable corner, but not not you know not eliminating arable cropping entirely. Uh, and then lots of interesting issues about trees as well, and um, where they fit into it. Um, so that would be it in a nutshell, I guess. And so, Chris, you've done in your book, you present an analysis based on some modeling of, of whether we can actually feed people this way. And you come to the conclusion that it's possible. Um, can you talk about that a bit? I mean, just about the way that you did the analysis. But I am right, right? We can do it. It, it is. If you take just the yeah, context well, of Britain, I mean, it's possible. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I did. I did some assumptions um, uh, on Britain, assuming that, you know, most countries in the global north or in the temperate latitudes, I think, are going to have um, climate refugeeism. Another big issue, of course. But, you know, sort of a standard figure you get from the UN is 250 million climate refugees by 2050. So I, I kind of in, incorporated Britain's share of that. Um, and then, um, yeah, made uh, a number of assumptions about um, um, trying to grow food in a sustainable way for that sort of population. Um, and, yeah, I don't, you know, basically, um, and also making quite low yield assumptions, taking organic yields, even the kind of lowest organic yields um, and applying a, a yield penalty as well. And, you know, the problem really isn't, um, uh, it, it isn't being able to grow enough food for ourselves. I mean, it might be at some point. It depends how all the the sort of climate and energy and other scenarios play out. But um, the notion that that we're at some kind of physical limit for producing food, I don't think is really the case. And when we, when we have these sort of debates, it's partly that people make standard existing labour assumptions um, or standard assumptions about energy you know what we have to do is cycle nutrients a lot better so um, you know we need to uh, return our wastes into the uh, agricultural cycle we probably need to eat well we definitely need to eat less meat certainly here in the UK if that sort of thing is um, you know if, if it's going to work but we probably eat too much meat or not very good quality meat anyway we can't really grow many crops to feed livestock you know like stock feed has to be incidental to the larger farm system but within all those parameters um, yeah we can feed ourselves the, the problem isn't the um, you know the, the the agronomy or the um, uh, the agricultural ecology the, the problem really is the political and economic systems that those fit into Chris the the last part of your book is just a contemplation of of how we might bring this this future um into reality uh and and as mm -hmm. as i was preparing just now uh to to ask you about that um i was thinking about my earlier comment that that i called i called this book um utopian and and your objection to that and i think it might be more appropriate to say that or, or to explain what i meant by that was that um the the crises that that are threatening the current global order could easily lead to um a very dystopian future and that, that your vision is an attempt to to lay out how we could uh, if not create a utopia uh, just avoid a more dystopian uh, result or consequences um, right so at any rate I what I thought I'd ask you in there's a lot that you contemplate in the book about what we have to think about in terms of um, the barriers to bringing this about to paraphrase 
one one way you could see these these more localized uh, political entities and economies coming about is just that the 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 central control of uh, of a state starts to decline, perhaps um, perhaps loses focus on the periphery or the hinterland, and therefore the people and in the hinterland can start to organize in a way that in some scenarios may not attract too much attention from the centralized state as, as they start to reorient their economy towards something like a, a small farm economy. Yeah. I mean, that, in, in, in a sense, yeah. I mean, the, 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 you know, his, it's, the, there are sort of historical precedents to this where, um, uh, you know, it may operate geographically in that way, or it, it may be a much kind of patchier thing geographically, but essentially, um, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of capital kind of melts, you know, those that, that symbolism that we were talking about earlier no longer works. People don't really sort of trust in the existing system any, anymore. And there's all sorts of ways that can go. Um, but, you know, that is the, that is the opportunity. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the problems I think is uh, we were talking earlier about um, cultural crisis and modernity. And, you know, one aspect of modernity is that we have these very linear single stories um, about progress, whether it's a kind of mainstream capitalist story that, um, you know, if we all pursue our, our self-interest, it will um, lead to social progress and everyone will be better off or a kind of Marxist story that, um, you know, that the working class becomes more and more oppressed and eventually will rise up and revolt and, and bring about a better socialist uh, society. Part of what I'm saying, um, or, or sorry, uh, just, just to add to that, a nationalist story that, um, you know, that there's something, there's some cultural unity to the nation that brings everyone together and, and sort of progresses it into the future. And part of what I'm saying in, in the, that final part of the book is that I don't really believe any of those modernist stories. Um, uh, you know, there's elements of truth to them all, perhaps. But really, um, you know, we're thrown back on, on our own resources as as individuals and as, as people in communities and as people, um, you know, form new types of political alliances. Um, uh, and it's hard to second guess what those opportunities and difficulties will be but um, you know part of my argument is yeah you know we spend a lot of time worrying about politics and you know which political path in the um you know in the in the in the parliament or the seat of government um uh, we should be supporting and, and lobbying and, and you know maybe there's an element of cynicism on my part that you know that's that's kind of a waste of time I'm not saying it's a waste of time it isn't a waste of time you know there's, there's all sorts of different levels at which we we must work you know but ultimately I think um, you know all of these institutions that we've taken for granted are suddenly going to go back in the mixer and I suppose part of what I'm saying is um, you know we need to be alive to the opportunities um, there and, and also alive to the threats. Last question, I guess, Chris, I'm just wondering what you recommend for those of us who really believe in your small farm future. What, 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 what is the task ahead of us? Well, I mean, there's endless tasks. I mean, from a from an agricultural point of view, I think, um, uh, you know, just to experiment with um, uh, with ways of growing and ways of marketing that feel right, you know, um, you know, I think we we sort of tend to, as we were talking about earlier, we tend to get trapped into 
bigger models or you know the existing ways of doing things so you know it's really important i think for us to follow our hearts really and experiment with things that feel right um and i think it's important for us to um to get political in uh, ways that perhaps you know the word political doesn't normally r resonate with people but you know not about national politics um so much as um uh, you know, how do I make connections locally? How do I uh, make my livelihood? How, you know, how do I get the things I need? What people um, am I relying on? What sort of needs do people have locally? Um, um, you know, how can I make my community a more congenial, thriving place? Um, and there's, you know, there's endless, endless ways that we can do that. And, you know, this, is, this isn't anything new, obviously. Um, it, it's something that people have always done but i think um to some extent we've um uh, you know we've had that narrative taken away from us by um you know by by these larger scale trends in political economy and the arable corner and um you know the way states work so part of it i suppose is just trying you know within within our limitations and you know i'm not this is not anyone being heroic and 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 sort of turning their back on everything in society but just trying to recapture and reclaim that that local ground really the book is a small farm future making the case for a society built around local economies self-provisioning agricultural diversity and a shared earth chris it's it's a really ambitious, thought-provoking, fascinating book. And I really thank you for talking a little bit about it today. And I really encourage listeners to go and check it out because there, there's just so much to, to, to Chris's argument that, that of course we couldn't cover. And uh, I, I think it's really worth a read. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. So that's it. If you really think about it, a conference is only as good as its organizing committee. And I really want to take this opportunity to encourage those of you out there who are passionate about conferences and the education that happens at conferences and all the other stuff that happens at conferences to consider joining the COABC conference committee. It's the committee that makes all the decisions about what's going to happen at the conference in any given year. They do a lot of brainstorming together and then they give their marching orders to the coordinator. As far as committees go, it's not very demanding and it can be really fun, especially when you get to the stage where you start to come up with ideas for the topics and the sessions that we want to try and have at the coming conference. So. If you've been consuming this podcast and you really feel like there are some topics or some speakers that are missing from what you wanted to listen to, it's a good indicator that you need to be on our conference planning committee. You can have your say and make sure that the lineup of seminars and workshops that we bring to the conference has something that appeals to everybody. The work you do on this committee can have a real impact on the experience of the conference for your colleagues. And in that sense, this committee can be really rewarding to participate in. So. We would love to have you if you want to give it a shot. And if you do, you can email office at certifiedorganic.bc.ca to let them know that you would consider sitting on the committee. It meets around once a month starting in June or July, and that usually goes until December or so. All over the phone, of course. Thanks, everyone.